Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. A theme of scripture seen in the Jews' exit from Egypt is that they want to go back. They long to return. We see the same thing in the story of Abraham. He leaves his home, his country, and God's taking him to a new home, a new place, and it requires that he never go back. And the temptation is to return, you know, the Jews to return to slavery, to safety. Once they're in the harsh wilderness conditions, they begin to grumble and say, well, let us go back to Egypt where we had food. We're slaves, that's true, but at least we have plenty to eat. The church in Hebrews is compared to Israel in the admonition not to return to slavery. You know, we need to enter into God's rest. In Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience. We might put the same thought in a slightly different idiom. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus tells him he must be born again. And Nicodemus says, oh, must I enter a second time into my mother's womb? It's a strange question, especially considering the history of something like new birth in the Old Testament. You know, 1 Samuel talks about the call of the child Samuel at night in the temple, and it's pictured as a rebirth toward God. Isaiah plays on the theme of rebirth, of recreation, of barrenness, and then regeneration. It's through the servant Israel that the whole people in Isaiah 49 will be reborn. The nations also will be enlightened and the earth itself will be restored. And so Isaiah repeatedly calls the exilic community Jacob Israel. That is, this is this community of people that are going somewhere and they can't go back. This double name for the community recalls the ancestor who experienced a radical change. Maybe a a third way to describe the same experience, the same temptation, is in relationship to the law. That Paul is raising up these young churches. A lot of them are made up primarily of Jews or influenced by Jews who are tempted to go back to observing the law. Or they are former idolaters who are tempted to return to their idolatry. And sometimes he talks in the same way. He'll talk about going back to the law and going back to idolatry as the same thing. In Galatians he says, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, he says, how can you turn back again? And actually he's talking about a false teaching, but that part of that false teaching is going back to the law. But maybe the most striking image is Paul's personal picture in Philippians 3. If you look there, in 3, 8 to 11, he's talking about his former status in Judaism. He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything 
as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This past week I listened to a podcast by a woman named Yeo Me Park, who actually escaped from North Korea. She describes the depth to which she was shaped by North Korean propaganda. She was born you know, in the early 90s in which there was starvation and actually families had turned to cannibalism. But Park says she presumed growing up that she lived in the best country on earth, a socialist paradise. And she presumed that all countries and peoples worshiped the dear leader just like they did. And that North Koreans in fact were the envy of the world. And so she describes the great pride that she had and the gratitude she felt in being among the chosen people. She viewed the dear leader with pure love and knew nothing of what she was deprived. She had never seen a map of the world, she says, and had no concept of what an Asian was. She didn't know she was an Asian. She just knew she was of the race of Kim. She says that in North Korea, uh, time is not marked you know, by the birth of Christ, but begins with the Kim dynasty. This is where history actually has its beginning. That's where they begin to study in school. She said there's no such concept as love or freedom. You know, we might think those are instinctive, but she claims they're non-existent in North Korea. She says there's no concept of romantic love, certainly, but all affection is to be directed to Kim Jong-un. So not only love between wife and husband, but between mother and daughter, or between family members, or between friends, is forbidden. Even love for the self is denied. The dear leader is the center and definition of all affection. Strangely, at some point, she sees the film Titanic, and she says it was the strangest experience. She'd never seen anything like that. It kind of opened up a new world for her. And then, of course, she eventually escapes with her family. She's only about 13. And she reads George Orwell's Animal Farm. And the book opened her eyes. She realized that he was describing her own society and that she had been brainwashed and that she had been subject to manipulation. But what becomes clear in all of this is the depth to which humans are plastic to which we might be manipulated. And so I think we can take a couple of lessons from her experience that are like Paul's lessons about his being Jewish. She quotes the other George Orwell classic, 1984, you know, in that one he says, he who controls the language controls the thoughts. And where there are no words for liberty, justice, or human rights, the concepts do not arise. They have to be taught. 
There is no direct access to a world of truth apart from the filter of language, apart from a cultural, political, religious construction. Apparently there is no built-in or biological world of instincts and concepts which we might fall back upon. The objects and ideas which make up subjective experience, they're enmeshed in a world which can be undone or redone. Park says she feels now as she's living in the United States. She attended Columbia University. She says, I feel like I'm on a different planet and that I'm completely disconnected, she says, from the person and experience which defined her in North Korea. But then she says a very surprising thing in the podcast. You're thinking, oh, she came to this glorious country. She says she actually misses, she longs for North Korea and she longs for her lost self. She longs for home. She longs for this lost world and she feels, you know, that obviously the only way to get it back would be to go back to North Korea, which she knows they would kill her. In fact, her father, when they escaped, he died in China, but he said, I want to go back to North Korea. I know they'll slaughter me, but I want my ashes to be scattered in North Korea. And she's describing the same experience. Her shift, it reminded me a little bit of the story of Helen Keller, who reports, maybe it's an even more fundamental thing, that she, prior to learning sign language, she didn't know basic things like water, doll, teacher, mother. And then suddenly the world is opened up to her. The names for object, they give her entrance into this experience. And the world opens and language, including the world of other people, but also herself. She suddenly has a sense of herself. And strangely, Helen Keller reports something very much similar to Park. She reports the sensation of guilt right before in the story that the miracle worker, she breaks a, a doll and she feels guilty about breaking this glass doll that Annie Sullivan had given her. But the idea is that she discovers this sense of self that she'd never have. And she reports, you know, when she first broke the doll, she felt delighted. And it seemed to be the breaking apart of a world for her. And she says this two times about the keen sense of delight. And then the guilt that she feels over this lost world. So it's sort of like Park reporting a longing for home. Her father decided he'd rather go back. The interviewer suggests to her, well, maybe isn't the United States, isn't that, aren't you able to be at home here? Is, is it an idea that you know you could adjust to? And she says she admits, maybe. But the longing of return, isn't it made of the same stuff as every child's feeling of having given up one world at the expense of another? I don't know if you all saw the movie, The Matrix, but that's the story that in The Matrix, they're all in this kind of womb of warm liquid and they're all plugged into a computer and they think they're experiencing the world, but actually they're just batteries for the computer. And some secret agents come and pull them out of the matrix, but some people would rather go back to the warm saline solution. Once we are mature, there is no possibility of going back. You know, this is the story of Israel. Once you leave Egypt, you can't go back to Egypt. 
This is the story of Nicodemus. No, you can't go back to the womb. This is the story of the law or of idolatry. Once we have escaped enslavement, once we've escaped the brainwashing of our culture, maybe we would all be tempted to return to the equivalent of our own North Korea. And as we pass from one world to another, from one home to another, the longing to return may be the most pronounced of sensations. It is, Paul says, a longing for unfreedom, for slavery. Clark talks about the longing for no ambiguity. All things are clear through the law. But this is not true only for us individually. I believe it also describes our corporate experience. We know that in the Bible there is a progressive, evolving revelation. This is the way the writer of Hebrew puts it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. You can't go back to the prophets. You can't go back to what was spoken earlier because there's a new word. A different world comes into being with Christ. But isn't it true that even in Christianity we can never return to Christendom in which the church and the state had absolute authority over people's lives and dictated what they should believe. We've passed out of that womb-like existence Maybe we think if we could just go back to the 1950s or to the time when people were all religious. Friedrich Nietzsche announces the death of God. God is dead, he says, and our world has been unchained from its son. And of course he's right, the God of the law, the God of the philosophers, the God of Christendom is no longer with us. Modern culture's loss of ultimate meaning is the loss in Christendom, it's the loss of scientism, it's the loss of a philosophical rationalism, it's the loss of the God of the philosophers. It's a loss that does not touch, though, upon the truth of Christianity. And sometimes I think we miss that. We may long to retreat to that previous age, to that previous time in history, but we have been set on a journey into the desert. The God who comes to us in Christ is after the fact that God has indeed died upon the cross in Christ. But this means that he is a God who can travel with us. For most of our contemporaries, you know, we don't recognize this maybe in rural Missouri, but in Europe and for a growing number in North America, religious belief is no longer a possibility. Religious belief for many is culturally and psychologically spent. The old man in the sky, the lawgiver, the god of reason, is mostly dead. Even Nietzsche, though, said, not everyone has heard of his demise. As Christians, we too have to acknowledge modernity is finished. We should not hesitate to agree that modernity has given rise to nihilism. But this is the same sort of ambiguity that Abraham and the Jews and the early Christians faced. Enlightenment reason has proven to be dark. Secularism reigns. And the world cannot be re-enchanted, at least in the way that it was. We understand now that spiritual forces surround us in a kind of psychological, political orientation which has possessed our neighbors 
and which has perhaps tempted all of us. And what we see in scripture is an unfolding of a new kind of human, a born again type, Jesus tells Nicodemus. A second type of Adam, Paul says in Romans. From Abraham to Christ, we see that the depiction of a new type of human subjectivity. Just as Yeon Mi Park and Helen Keller felt reborn with their acquisition of a new language. We have rebirth in the word that is Christ. This word is at work in the world, unfolding or enfolding new meanings as the old Egypt, as the law, as Babel is displaced with Jerusalem. But we must acknowledge we are between two places. We are in the now and not yet. We are between Jerusalem and Egypt. As one writer described it, we all begin our existence in the safety of the womb, the intrauterine space where we float serenely in our little amniotic seas, enveloped in the sheltering spheres of our placentas. Our first experience of others, our first intuition of ourselves, as differentiated from the cosmos, is in fact the experience of the tissues that enclose and protect us. This state is then succeeded, but not necessarily superseded, by a maternal embrace, and then by countless other sheltered clearings in the darkness of being. But that first home will always remain a potent memory, pervading and shaping our individual, social, and spiritual lives. Sounds very Freudian, the need to return. And the danger is that we might imagine we can return like Nicodemus questioned. We might long with part to go back to North Korea. Or we might feel with Helen Keller that we've relinquished a world when in fact we've given up nothing. The womb, I'm afraid, becomes a tomb as the danger is that we will trade maturity for security. Jesus' death and resurrection exposes the nature of this desire for return, to return to the law, to return to Egypt, to return to the security of ethnic identity as Jew or Gentile. In warding off the desert of reality with the state, the nation, the city of man, or even with the God of the law, we may protect ourselves from the reality of death by entombing ourselves. If we can be born again, this means there's a certain plasticity to our nature. As I described it last week, if we could break down human history into Paul's stages, his psychological categories, historically we've passed beyond the age of the law, the time in which the father, the state, the church, reigned and ruled, the time may be comparable to a time in the womb, that comfortable time in which the emperor, you know, remember the begged at the gates of the Pope. In our culture's psycho-historical journey, I think we've passed into the questioning of the law. We've passed into the notion of rational individualism, in which for a brief historical moment, the I or the ego reigned. You know, this is the American Revolution, this is the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution. We're all given impetus by the desire for freedom. They all signal that the old religious and cultural authorities 
were no longer adequate. They all attempted to throw off the inquisitions, the slaughter of religion. Christendom had become corrupt in identifying with the czars, the kings, and the popes. But this throwing off of Christendom is a continuation of the Christian story. Jesus himself assaulted the priesthood, the Pharisees, the ruling authorities. He assaulted all the mediating structures, the temple, the cult, the law. And the impetus to throw off the kingdom of Christendom is Christian. It's of Christ. It's the immediate claim that we all have equal access to God through Christ. Jesus does not depend on mediating structures. Those made in the likeness of the old patriarchies. The robed authorities who would pretend to be priests, mediating God for others. But of course the danger is that the deconstructive power of Christ will leave us homeless. It will leave us harking to return, to retreat into the protective realms of the law, of nationalism, of Christendom, of the womb. We're surrounded by right-wing fundamentalists, right-wing Catholics, right-wing nationalists. And maybe right-wing is the wrong name here. I think it's an all-inclusive category. Right-wing atheists, religionists. Maybe it's just the comfort of psychotherapy or drugs. We are a country plagued by mental illness and drug addiction. As the old religion fails, the new forms of retreat, they've taken a variety of forms. If we've passed from the age of the law to the age of the ego, the ego is besieged by the unconscious, by the drive toward death. We certainly need a world to inhabit, but for many, for many of our contemporaries, their world is undone. And they may call this world that of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, that of nationalism, or simply that of rational autonomy. But the desire to return, the impetus, I think, behind fascism, the fascism that surrounds us, arises then from the pursuit of freedom as its own end. Certainly the world has become secular. The demons and fairies have been cleared out. But we've been possessed by a more binding spiritual enslavement. And so my point, Paul's point, we cannot return. Nietzsche's diagnosis of God's death, it's a fact for most people. Plato's God cannot be resurrected. And the attempt to revive that dualism through some sort of fundamentalism or religious nationalism, I think it's a sign of retreat. It's a sign of return. It's an age that cannot be restored. There is no returning to Egypt, no returning to the law. The epics of human psychohistory are not reversible. The refounding of human subjectivity undertaken by Christ is not reversible. We cannot rebuild scientism, pre-critical rationalism, or a naive individualism. The contradictions are exposed and the idols are toppled, but this is the outworking, I believe, of Christ. Christendom fell because of Christianity. The attempt we are witnessing to restore the notion of a Christian nation, to imagine that secularism is not the case, I think it's fruitless. But it's also true that secularism is a kind of nihilism. The foundations of the secular order are no more secure than those of Paul's religious order. 
But the answer is not to go back to slavery, to return to a sticky nostalgia. The Catholic right, the evangelical right, there's a kind of resentment. But maybe just the notion of some sort of final restoration. We are part of the restoration movement. I think we can profoundly misunderstand what it is we might be restoring. We of the restoration movement should not imagine we can restore New Testament Christianity by turning back the clock. That's not what it means. New Testament Christianity is precisely that which has driven us to this moment in history in which the idols are fully exposed. I do not mean that we're mere products of history. There is an apocalyptic form of the faith that has always been delivering us from mere genealogy or mere history. So history is not historicism, but it's a ground of learning and moving forward, and you cannot go back. We are not journeying back to Eden. There is no lost golden age. But we are called out of this impulse to return so as to move forward. And that's what Paul concludes in Philippians. Let's read in conclusion his conclusion. It's not that God has died, but a certain image of him, even for Paul, has died. The image he had as a Pharisee of who God is. This is his explanation. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, Or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.